0: Better way to do this Let me show you a better way't be
1: Well hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Friday, April the fourteenth, twenty twenty-three. We have reached episode three thousand two hundred and ninety of the Survival Podcast Expert Council Q and A show for four fourteen twenty-three. I have a great lineup of the experts for you today. Seven expert panel segments in the Ron Paul Liberty highlights. We'll hear about the world ditching the dollar from Doctor Paul Dan McAdams. We'll talk about Whether or not a President Kennedy is a possibility. That would be Robert Kennedy Jr. Uh, And Chris Rossini will talk about how governments want no competing loyalties. Jeff Lawton talks about dealing with a potentially concerning affluent runoff from a neighbor. Sean Mills will talk about the best use for a SolarMax 5300 system. Doc Ken Berry will talk about low-carb backpacking foods and bug-out foods. Josh the Renegade Butcher will talk about... How do you know the meat you get back from processing is actually from the animal that you brought there? I think this is worried about more than it needs to be. And I'll tell you why I think people think this way when we get to that one. Doc Bones will talk about preps and changes if you're going to have your spleen removed. Professor C.J. Kilmore will talk about why so much went on in 1913. And I have a quote of the day for you from Benjamin Franklin. It certainly befits our time. He said, A great empire, like a great cake, is most easily diminished at the edges. Again, Ben Franklin. And we will have all of that in just a moment. Before we do, I want to remind you guys about a couple things. One, this is your absolute last, 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 last shot. I did this episode yesterday, and I released it super early in the morning. Because you got one more chance, and it's going to run out sometime today, to get on Paul Wheaton's Low Tech Labs Kickstarter. Over $500 worth of stuff to back the project at 100 bucks or more. If you haven't got in on it yet, you might want to do it really quick. And if you're already in, but you're under that 100 bucks, you might want to jack it up when you see all of the cool stuff that you get by backing this Kickstarter. Which, in of itself... Is worth the full cost. Next up, I want to remind you guys I will be in Bastrop, Texas, May 18th through 22nd at Exit and Build 3, speaking down there, teaching down there about biochar. Uh, we're going to be doing an empowerment session myself, John, and Nicole. A lot of other really great teachers. Fantastic opportunity. Two days of presentations, but also uh, three days of presentations and a couple of days out in the field doing farm tours and stuff like that. You pick which days you want to come, how much you want to do. Uh, you also can attend virtually. Lots of cool opportunity here. Again, May 18th through 22nd. I've got to tell you guys, Bastrop's just a cool place to hang out. It really is. We had a blast down there last time. I'm sure we will again. And this time, Nicole Awesome Sauce will be there with me, so you can meet both of us. Uh, next up. Uh, let's go ahead and, and dig on into this. Let's. Uh, well, no, I actually wanted to tell you about uh, Spaz item of the day. It was yesterday as well. Uh, it's a product called Happy Frog Cavern Cavern Culture Fertilizer. They call it Cavern Culture because Cavern Culture because it includes bat guano. It's primarily a phosphorus source, but it has a whole litany of beneficial fungal organisms as part of your fertility program. I really love this stuff. I feel like. When I found this this year, along with Biochar, I found the last piece in my fertility program. Like, everything just works together now. It's a really awesome product. Remember, you can always find everything that I recommend at tspaz.com. You can help support the show anytime you shop online by starting there. But check this stuff out. There's a link to it in the show notes today. You can find it on the website just by scrolling down. Happy Frog Cavern Culture Fertilizer. Great phosphorus source, great micronutrient, macronutrient source, Massive source of diverse fungal soil organisms, very affordable, just a pinch in the bottom of the hole whenever you do a transplant, it will change everything for you. With that, let's go ahead and hear from our first expert this week, which is actually three of them because it's Dr. Paul's Liberty Highlights in order. Dr. Paul followed by Damic Adams and then Chris Rossini.
2: The dollar will not be the reserve currency uh, uh, for a lot longer, it's not going to be my bet would be that uh, it's not going to be the reserve currency of the world being used massively like it has been, you know, in five or ten years, but uh, it, the, the the currency of the foreign, uh, the, uh, the the reserve currencies uh, disappear slowly, then <laughs> somebody made the point, then rapidly. It's going to happen, but it's not the end of the world. Matter of fact, there's tremendous improvements. It would dissipate the power of a few people who want to run the whole world. And it's, it's not your friendly congressman who has a little bit of influence. It's somebody that's pulling the strings that has been involved with wokeism and the takeover of this country and the uh, national security agencies that, that control. Thing, our judicial system, our educational system. That's what uh, that is. What has brought us to our knees here. And uh, so, if we lose the reserve currency, uh, I think it uh, it will it will be replaced. So let's put up this first clip. I think this is
0: the Daily Callers uh, headline. He files paperwork for 2024 presidential run. And all you have to do is look at him. He looks like a president. I mean, that's a pretty superficial thing. But he looks like a president. He looks presidential, unlike, I think, the other two candidates in a way. But it is very interesting because... And I think you suggested early on, and I've noticed among people that I follow on Twitter <coughs> who are libertarians, that there is a lot of excitement. There is a lot of excitement across political parties. There is excitement among conservatives. I think it's a breath of fresh air. And here are a couple of things that he's said recently, and we have to thank Zero Hedge for these tweets that we pulled out of their article. But here's what he said when he was exploring whether or not to file. And this is how he's going to define his candidacy. My top priority will be to end the corrupt merger between state and corporate power that has ruined our economy, shattered the middle class, polluted our landscapes and waters, poisoned our children, and robbed us of our values and freedoms. Together we can restore America's democracy.
2: But, you know, I've been looking at the announcement. There were a lot of announcement stuff. You know, the thing that's, that struck me is what is exciting is uh, he doesn't like neocons, yeah. and he doesn't like the combination, which we've known for a long time. He doesn't like the combination of big government and big business. Yeah. So he's he's been on that position for a long, long time. But uh, that generally puts, uh, puts him into the category of progressive. And uh, we worked with him on anti-war issues, on civil libertarian issues, but he's developed a name uh, because he was willing to take on the pharmaceutical industries, yeah. and, and, and that's a big deal, because if you break ranks there, they can come down hard on you.
3: You know, we are, whether we like it or not, or whether we know it or not, in a battle between power and, we could say, freedom between the market, but in order to at least um, make it through in this life, you have to understand what power is all about. And, uh, one of the other things in the article was about, uh, Jeff's article was, uh, family and marriage. You know, the marriages, there's less marriages. I see it just in my life with the friends that I have and people not wanting to have kids. And, you know, this works into the power mentality because, uh, power wants total control and family, marriages, these are, alternate loyalties so you will have loyalty to your husband or wife to your children first before the state before the government and government doesn't want that government wants your total loyalty for themselves and when when the family is broken up now they've got you isolated and we 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 see that with the less marriages even when you have marriages you have two incomes now there's nothing wrong with two incomes but it's mandatory now. It's not even optional. You don't even think about it. You, you, when you're dating or whatever, you're wondering is, are we going to be able to survive with both of our incomes? It's not one income anymore. So, and this also feeds into another, um, aspect. It's uh, dependency. It's you and the state and the state wants you completely dependent on it. And, uh, we see also with, uh, uh, in schools, they don't want parents having a say in the kids' education, which is amazing, but that's how it is today. Or even, we'll go even further, the gender of your kids. So it's your kids and the state that are owned by the state. You are owned by the state. Now these are big, uh, these ideas go all the way back too. Uh, you know, it's just today we're seeing them play out. Uh, you know, and with the destruction of the family unit, uh of even the belief in god you know uh, the state tries to move in and play god and it does a terrible job but that's what they that's what the nature of power is so understanding this uh can at least help you to at least in your minds uh uh try to think of how to uh get out of the way or try to alternatively live so that you can go against this terrible trend that we're in
1: I want to comment just a real quick bit on uh, President Kennedy, and then we'll move on to, uh, or potentially President Kennedy. And then we'll move on to Jeff Lawton with the affluent runoff issue. Totally totally different, diverse thing today, right? We're going to have a lot of variety in today's show. Anyway, I think this is about a million to one odds from happening. Um I think he, he would he would go down in you know, his great-uncle's footsteps if he got close. I think they'd, they'd get rid of him if he got really close. I'd hope not, but I think it's definitely possible. He'll have some sort of accident or something. Uh, I don't think that'll happen because I don't think he's going to get close. I don't think that he has a chance... Uh, running against whoever the Democrats decide to anoint. And I think the Democrats have a history of being willing to rig their own primaries to make sure the people they don't want don't get in. Uh, as bad as Republican primaries can be, and Dr. Paul can tell you all about that from his experience, um, but as bad as they are, nothing nothing competes with the Democrats' ability and the, the powers they've given themselves to rig a primary. Ask Bernie Sanders. Okay. Um now, how could this happen? Because even their powers to rig only go so far. If you have overwhelming support for a candidate, you can't really get rid of it. The only way I could see this happening, and this is I'm mean, this is not a prediction. This is like if it could happen, how it could it happen? The Republicans uh get so so trounced in their primary by a front runner, either Trump or DeSantis, that halfway through the primaries it's not even an issue anymore. There is no doubt who is going to be the Republican nominee. It, it, it's sewn up. And then a whole bunch of Republicans vote on the Democrat side of the primaries for Kennedy. Which, I I'm not the big fan of this guy a lot of you are. I think he's solid on some issues, and I think he's really, really bad on a lot of... In the end, he is still a full-on liberal Democrat. He still believes that government is the, the overseer that should be in charge. He does a great job in his book, and I love his book, Explaining Regulatory Capture, and then calls for more government oversight. I, it's like a circle of doom, right? Um, he is no friend to your right to keep and bear arms at all. But again, I don't really get involved in politics anyway. But would he be better than Gavin Newsom? Yeah. Would he be better than Brandon? Yeah. Would he be better than Cackles the hyena uh, uh Kamala? Yeah. So it actually would make sense if you had already determined that there you, you don't you're not going to get what you want or you are going to get like no matter what happens it's either you're not going to or you are going to get what you want on the republican side if you're a republican voter to walk across in the primaries even if that required you to register as a democrat and do and and this is not without precedent i don't know that it's ever been done successfully but there's been movements to do it before to switch loyalties during a primary to And usually it's been done with the intent of, let's get the the weaker candidate to win the nomination. Yeah? Uh, I don't know that that would happen. That's the only way I see it. Here's my assessment on the Republican nomination, right? Because I've been asked about this. Democrat, it's either going to be Brandon Cackles or Newsom. And I don't know yet, because who knows how this is all going to play out. On the Republican side, unless Trump ends up in actual jail... Right for one of the 9,000 different things they're going to try to get him for now. If very few people enter the race, I think DeSantis has a real possibility of defeating Trump in the primaries. A real possibility. The bigger the clown car gets, the less DeSantis has the potential to become the nominee. If we do like we've done in past elections, where there's 10, 12, 18 candidates on the Republican side like there were on the Democrat side last time, there's no way Trump doesn't win. If you can if you can sew up a third of the votes, and the other two-thirds are split up between 10, 12, 13 candidates, you're going to win. And you're going to win handily. And so, all of these never-Trump Republicans that are all talking about getting in the race now, if they actually meant what they said they would pick one or two strong candidates, because most of them are not strong. Nikki Haley is not a strong candidate. Okay? Not even close. I'm sorry. No. You're not a strong candidate, right? John Bolton talking about, right? This guy, like, he... he, We would already all be dead if John Bolton was in charge. He's tried to start nuclear war a thousand times in his life. No chance whatsoever. People are not... As stupid as people are, they're not that stupid. But when you start adding all these people, and they can take 2 3% of the vote, it starts to add up really quick when you put that across 10, 15 candidates. And a few of them can take 10, 15, 20% of the vote, and Trump's sitting there with 33 to 40% of the vote. He's got the nomination locked up. So that's going to determine it. Now, I think if you have Trump-DeSantis, and they be like, he's killing him in the polls. Polls mean nothing right now. DeSantis hasn't even entered the race officially. We're not even into campaign season for this. If you put them head-to-head you'll see a real horse race. I, I'm not saying who will win. I'm saying you see a race. And we saw this with Trump the first time. When it got down to just Trump and Cruz, Trump won. But the, the margin of victory narrowed considerably. And he actually lost a few states in the end, but he didn't need them anymore. Had it just been Trump and Cruz the whole time, I still think Trump, the time that Trump picked a run was perfect for him. And I think he would have still won, but I, I don't think it would have been like this landslide unbelievable victory. Anyway, that's my thoughts. I don't think it really matters. I think what you do in your own backyard is way more important. And one of the things should be going on in your background, you could have some runoff from your neighbors, and it could be somewhat concerning. And Jeff Lawton will tell you what you should do about that if that's the case.
4: Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from the Dead Sea Valley in Jordan. And I have a question here about a neighbor's uh, sediment pipe that uh, is not supposed to be grey water or any kind of effluent but appears to be creating an effluent situation into um, a fence line and then down into a small sediment pond before a swale and then after that leaching down to what sounds like a beautiful lake. Now the lake has uh, aquatic weed problems which may be related to this or may not but Aquatic weeds make fantastic compost, so if you can find a way of grappling them out. And then plan non-invasive replacements in the water, and particularly around the edge. Um, you've got a resource, and you can make the compost, really good compost with aquatic weeds, often just aquatic weeds, but add a few other things to make it more interesting. And you've got growing medium that will grow edge-side plants, that'll reduce the problem. Algae usually means an input of nutrient, and it sounds like you might've found an input of nutrient from your neighbor's um, pipe. And um, the the catchment pond that it runs into looks as if it's covered in algae. So you just need more biomass action. Um, And you planted some willows, um, but uh, you're not sure if they've grown yet because it's only just coming into summer. They should put leaf on. The great thing about willows is you can actually plant almost logs so you can drive, um, large branches into the ground, like almost like small fence posts and then you can weave other willow in between them and connect it to the ground. You can actually weave willow together and make almost like a living gabion wall. Um, famous natural sequence farming, um, in Australia, uh, favors these methods. Um, Peter Andrews, Natural Sequence Farm in, in Australia. But then you also have traditional systems all the way through the Northern Hemisphere where willows have been woven together to make living walls and living gavions and retaining walls and living fences. So, amazing, amazing product. And they themselves will create a lot of biomass, um, nice carbon pathway that produces high carbon mulch that can make great uh, addition if you've got a chipper or you can get it chipped. Now, the other one is typhus. What you in America call cattails, what a lot of the English-speaking world call bulrush. The genus is typhus. Um, it produces more rhizome than any other plant on the planet. It actually produces more animal forage in its underground root system than by weight than any other plant on Earth. And that's where you want the mass so you really need to combine at least those two plants dense willow planting and um, the uh, the cattails um, and you'll get that great big root net from the willow that doesn't have a tap root just a massive hair root and the great big rhizobium mat um, of the typhus now then you can add other plants as well but have those as your strong front line um, as your major dominant species to absorb all this and then, um, add any other vigorous, you know, um, you got, uh, uh, typhus as your main read, but you've also got juncus, validus, shonoplexus, um, there's loads of, them. um, Phragmites if it's not, if it's not too cold. Um, but there will be loads locally and there will be some sold as well in, in, in local nurseries, um, and, and, um aquatic nurseries aquatic pond shops some outdoor you know sort of aquarium pond um sales outlets you know you'll find all kinds of things when you start to look but go for those dominant ones first because you've got to sop up the nutrient and um, get the top input side of your lake well planted and densely planted and reduce the nutrient input get it absorbed by plants so there you go
1: I have have two additional suggestions. Both of them are water plants versus marginal uh, edge plants that Jeff was recommending there. One is in this pond, um, this catchment pond that's upgrade the first pond, the sediment pond. I don't know how big this is, so making a decision on this would have a lot to do with how big it is. One would be water hyacinth. Now, it may be illegal where you are, it may be legal where you are. I would use real caution if you choose to do this. I would not, and it it would have a lot to do with how big this sediment pond is. If this sediment pond is something like a 10-foot diameter pond, something that you can reach the center of from all around it, I would consider water hyacinth. You don't want it in your big pond. You will never be able to deal with it in your big pond. It will be too much to deal with, so don't do it if there's any way it can get there. People that one piece or whatever, and it could happen. So unless you live in a place where you get absolutely full-on hard freezes, don't even touch it when you have large bodies of water on your property. so. But if, you, if it's not the issue, if you, if you live in a place where you're going to get a full-on hard freeze, and if some of it does escape, it doesn't matter because it's all going to die. If you put that in your catchment pond or possibly even build more sedimentation ponds above it, even maybe one really small one. Like if you could somehow put in a liner lined small in ground pond up at the very head of this where this fluent first comes in and covered that with with water hyacinth, it will dramatically, and I mean dramatically take nutrient up out of there in a way that you can't even begin to conceive of. And then you've got a livestock feed. The much safer play here though it's just that if it's heavy sun it's not going to make it through the summer is azola that we've talked about a lot lately, which will also take up a massive amount of nutrient. It will grow like crazy in high nutrient water, and you've got a feed source and a fertilizer source so those would be two things you could look at and see how they might fit into your design, depending on where you're at. I wouldn't worry about azola getting anywhere because it doesn't go everywhere it doesn't stay everywhere. It has spots it likes and spots it doesn't like. It's not the creature that ate the world like water hyacinth can be in some environments. The other problem with water hyacinth is once it takes up all the nutrient, when it dies, it lets all those hairs go. And water lettuce is way worse about this. But both of them can do this, and it can cause fish kill because they end up with all those little fibers stuck in their throats. Again, Azolla does not have this risk. So I would look at that potential. Next, do not overlook what Jeff said about the value of water plants, algae, et cetera, as compostables. And I will also point out, if you do vermicomposting, I know, I know there's a ton more there than you can use, but you can use what you need out of it. Uh, worms will eat the hell out of water hyacinth. Uh, they'll eat uh, azola, they'll eat algae, they'll eat all that stuff. I'm using string algae that, you know, it's in my system. It's something you're going to deal with. It's in some of my aquatic systems. And I pull out these big mats of it, and I'm laying this into my vermicomposting bin, and the worms love it. It's like a lot of people that do vermicompost, and they put a couple layers of burlap over the top of their material. Well, this, I have layers of it. So I have a layer of that, then more, you know, more food, and then another layer of that. And they're up and down through it all the time, and they're eating it, and they're living in it, and it's, it's, it's perfect for them. So I finally found a good use for a thing that's just really a pain in the rear. Uh, so that would be something else to consider. But, you know, if like floating weed mats and stuff like that, the what, some of the best things I've seen for getting it out is people basically make uh, a surface rake out of a big piece of PVC pipe with some uh, something like maybe uh, rebar for tines that are only go down you know, a couple inches out of it, sealed up with the ends cap so it'll float. And then a rope on it, and then a rope attached. So you have a rope from each end coming together like a ski rope. And then a single rope like the tow rope that goes from the skier back to the thing. So it'll stay even. And you just throw that out. And then the weights of the tines rotate straight down. And you drag it in. And that's a great way to harvest a lot of those weeds. And, man, the value of those as compostables is massive. Massive. Massive, massive, massive. With that, now let's go into solar energy with Sean Mills and a SolarMax 5300 system. Hey,
5: everybody. This is Sean Mills with HackMyHomestead.com. And today I've got a question from Kent about an existing system and adding to it. So here we go. My question is for Sean Mills. What would be my best use for a, quote, Max 5300, unquote, From Total Solar Innovations, I have been gifted with a SolarMax 5300 complete setup, which is new in 2015, including six 240-watt PV panels with connection wires and plugs, inverters, Ames uh, 5000-watt modified sine wave, and an Ames 300-watt pure sine wave, a Schneider 60-amp charge controller, a shower charger, and an EMP-proof steel box, all on a heavy-duty car. Should I buy batteries or not? Should I part it out for sale or sell as a package? Should I make use of it within my current setup as pieces or as a whole? I'm open to anything that makes sense with the additional details below. The panels are currently stacked behind a lot of stuff, so I can't see any printing on them, but they are large panels, 240 watt, and appear to be in good physical condition, stacked upright and protected with plywood. The downside is that all the batteries, which are six 12 volt glass mat batteries, are bad, really bad, bulging. Uh, I'll attach I'll attach pictures of the car, but again can't really get to the panels at this point. So by way of additional information, I also have a 5000 watt solar PV system permanently installed on a building roof that has no battery backup and is grid tied, which was installed late 2011. It's a Basic components are a Sunny Boy 5000 U.S. SMA inverter, which was replaced in 2016, and 24 Canadian solar CS6P 230-watt panels. I may be able to move the existing support rails and panels on this system closer together, allowing for mounting the six additional panels to the same 30-degree metal roof structure. Of course, this would require mounting or additional mounting rails and quote-unquote stuff, Working on and moving the existing panels is a concern to me. I'm also unsure if the current Sunny Boy 5000 US SMA inverter would handle the additional panels. I also have a 6,500-watt Generac gas generator and gasoline storage, which I opted for back in 2013 instead of the original planned addition of battery backup to my current PV system. I have it all safety wired up, so with minimal effort, I can power anything in the house, with the exception of my heat pump, and I have a backup propane furnace to cover that need, And disconnect from the grid for of course it will not run everything but will run anything as long as we are aware and turn things off and on as required any suggestions you may have would be greatly appreciated Uh, thank you Kent well Kent uh, thanks for sending in the question I'm not a real big fan of those solar max 5300 systems I think it's telling that this was called a solar max 5300 and it had six 240 watt solar panels and your roof-mounted system is also referred to as a 5,000-watt system, and it had 24 230-watt panels. Uh, the reality is is that um, nothing about this system is capable of 5,300 watts. So the name's a bit misleading. I, I thought that it was uh, kind of a rip-off. Um, now, that being said, I mean, if you wanted something that someone else put together for you that you could kind of plug and play and generate a little bit of electricity back in 2015... Um, it was an interesting project, but I was not willing to pay $5,000 for an interesting project. So, uh, the batteries and the charge controller on this thing are actually pretty decent, but it sounds like the batteries in your system are completely shot. Um, honestly, if you have a 6,500 watt generator, you don't need either one of those inverters. You could take the small one and utilize it in a vehicle. Uh, you'd hardwire it directly to the battery. And in the event that you needed to do things that required more than the 60 watts or so that you're going to get out of the vehicle, about um, less than 300 watts, then you'd have a, a device that was capable of that. Now, I will say that your Sunny Boy inverter does have three MPPT inputs, and it's possible that with those specific panels that they only use two of them. Uh, your panels could be placed in two strings of 12, which each string into its own MPPT input. Now, whether they did this or not is a different question. Um, if they did, you could utilize the additional six panels on the third MPPT input, that being said, most interconnection agreements you would have with the utility company would specify your nameplate capacity and you would have to apply for additional wattage, then get another batch of inspections before connecting them. If you're okay with that, then putting them up on the roof and getting some generation out of them is a good idea. You could even talk to the electrician about rewiring the existing panels to open up the third MPPT for the new panels if that's the direction you wanted to go. Honestly, I think a better idea might be to recycle the batteries, sell off the crate, the cart, the charge controller, and the inverters, and put the panels into a small secondary non-grid-tied system or to use as project panels, like running an aquaponics pump or brooder heat lamps. Um, These panels weren't very good uh, back in 2015. You know, they're on the lower end of, of what was coming onto the market and uh so you know they're probably going to generate 170 180 maybe 200 watts uh in perfect sun conditions you know so six of those that's 1200 watts you can actually do some stuff with that um, if you wanted to and and like i said you could um, install a separate non-grid tied system and maybe size the components so that in the event of a longer grid down scenario like you have thunderstorms come through the area and transformers are taken out, it's going to take a while for that system to get back online. You could actually take your uh, solar inputs from the grid-tied inverter and maybe flip them over to the off-grid inverter. So if I was in your situation, that's probably what I would do with those panels is just try to create a secondary uh, system. That being said, I did see the picture of your roof. There's not a ton of room. Um, And so maybe project panels is the way to go. And if you didn't feel like doing any of that, then just sell them the whole lot as is, uh, and using that to store some more gas or something might be a good uh, solution for you. So that's it for today. Thank you, Kent, for sending uh, that question in. If you guys keep sending the questions in, I will keep getting them answered. Thanks, and have a great day.
1: Good stuff, as always, from Sean. I have determined that solar kits in general, whether they're larger kits, smaller kits, are not the best way to do solar. Just from all of the times I've heard Sean talk about this, all the things I've looked at, pricing stuff, that actually buying the components and putting them together will always get you more output for your money than buying a kit. Kits are cool because it's everything you need and they come with instructions. I mean, that's that's what you're paying for there, I guess, instead of doing the research. And, you know, they're okay. I've seen some little kits that come like from tractor... Not tractor supply yet. What is it? God, the tool company... Harbor Freight, I want to say Northwest Tool, I guess they did too, but Harbor Freight, and and done little things done with them and all, and they work just fine, and they are what they are, but they will always have those limits. Anyway, moving on, now let's hear from uh, Dr. Ken Berry on low-carb backpacking and bug-out food.
6: Hey, Jack and the TSP crew, this is Dr. Ken Berry today answering a question from John, Uh, John says, I'm looking for ideas for low carb backpacking and bug out bag food, ideally stuff that can be used with MRE heaters or just bottled water. Uh, It's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. So there's several options here. The first thing I would recommend, and I hope all you guys are doing this is learn how to freeze dry and package food. It's relatively simple. The, when you remove the water, from foods, you typically make it 70% lighter. Uh, most cuts of meat and eggs are about 60 to 75% water. And so you're, you're keeping all the nutrition in, you're just removing the water, and then you can rehydrate that at a later time. I was just at John and Amanda Willis's event in Camden, Tennessee, and there was a company there who had all kinds of freeze-dried meat that come in little packs that are vacuum sealed. The, the, the packs are very, very light. And all you do is just add water and heat. And then you've got, you've got your, your meat or your eggs right there. I actually ordered uh, pork roast. I, I bought it from them and, and dehydrated scrambled eggs. And they cooked it up for me right there on the spot. And that's what I broke my fast with at about 3 p.m. was scrambled eggs and pork roast that had been freeze-dried and came out of a bag. Another option is a product that I don't have any affiliation with. It's made in Arkansas. It's called Keto Brick, K-E-T-O-B-R-I-C-K. And it's made by my friends, uh Robert and Crystal Sykes in Arkansas. It, each brick is a thousand calories of energy and it's just fat and protein. And I know these guys personally, so I recommend this, not because I make any money off of it, but because I I know they use clean ingredients. And so keto brick, is, each one is a thousand calories, lots of protein and fat. They don't take up much room. And that's exactly what we've got in our bug out bag. And and we've got a bunch of keto bricks stacked up at the back of the pantry because they have at least a two year shelf life, probably much longer. And the you're never gonna starve to death if you've got keto bricks in your bug out bag, in your um, hiking backpack. And I've actually talked with Dixie Mills about Keto Brick. I don't know if she's tried them yet, but I really think she should because the nutrition they give per ounce and and based on how uncumbersome they are to carry, I think is a great idea for people who go on long-term hunts, long-term backpack hiking, uh, bug out bags, and to keep at the back of your cabinet as well. Hope this answer helps. This
1: is Dr. Berry. See you next time. So the only thing I'll say about the Keto Brick product, Ken brought one of those here to a workshop, maybe two of them, but I know it was one variety in particular. And I was excited about it, and even had talked to him about maybe getting in touch with them and doing a discount for y'all. The general consensus among people who tried bits of it was didn't taste very good. I'm sure it's everything they say it is, and maybe it was just the variety or the flavor or whatever, I don't know. Maybe it's gotten better. This is a couple of years back. But I would just say if you're going to try the Keto Brick, go ahead and try it. So you might like it even if I don't or if you know, somebody else didn't. But uh, I would go I'd go in soft, give it a shot, see what you think, and then order more. And I would say that's true of anything you're going to eat. Because just because something has the nutrition you need and it's made with the ingredients you want, it doesn't mean you're going to like it. So I would say that with any food, because food is very subjective. Food's like music. I can have a song I think is the greatest song ever written that I love listening to, and you hate it. It's like listening to nails on a chalkboard. That's how food is. So I'm not crapping on it. I'm just saying that the general consensus was people didn't actually care for the flavor. Just just feel obligated to put that out there. But good advice from Ken. Josh, the renegade butcher, now on another thing to do with me. How do you know the meat that you send off to the butcher that comes back? is actually from the animal you gave the butcher in the first place.
7: Hey there, folks. Josh the Renegade Butcher, coming to you from Southeast Texas. Just wanted to throw out a little uh, segment here for Jack on the uh, Survival Podcast Expert Council. I get asked the question all the time, how do you know that you got your own meat back from the processor? That's sort of like asking if your plumber's ripping you off. It, It depends. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. You probably did. I would say in most cases... At least when it comes to domestic animal processing, you probably got your own meat back. It's usually more work to try to replace somebody's meat with someone else's. However, what it comes down to is in any industry is going to be integrity and transparency. So if you're looking at a new processor or it's someone you've not worked with enough and you, you have suspicions, ask around, uh, especially in smaller communities, and that's usually where the small processors are at. And the shady ones generally develop a reputation pretty quick. People will know, especially if they have been processing animals with uh, with someone for quite some time or they have a history of that, they know their meat, they know what they expect to get back. So if something, uh, if there was a change, they will probably notice. If you have a processor that calls you up and tells you that they made a mistake and explains it to you, they're probably legitimate because very, very few times do I run into a business that is willing to uh, to admit their mistakes and not just try to pass it off and hope no one notices. The other option is uh, if you have mobile processors anywhere near you, give them a call. Um, or if you find uh, independent small butchers, or if you've got uh, a friend that, uh, that does it privately, give them a holler. And usually if, uh, well, if they're not going to have you involved in the process, that you can at least uh, observe. And many of them are going to be very willing to give some hands-on instruction. Because it's a bit of a dying art, and it's something they want to pass on. I've done a bit of that myself. I've uh, had folks on my podcast that are uh, small processors that do exactly that as well. So, it's definitely worth checking out if it's available in your area. Uh, And you can also, if you are looking to learn to do it yourself, just so that you know for sure that you do get your own meat back, and have it done the way that you want, and you're looking to add a skill to your repertoire, well... There's lots and lots of online resources available now. You can get on YouTube. You can find a ton. You can follow my podcast. You can join the Telegram community. um, Look up renegadebutcher.com. We've got a a Telegram chat that's connected to that, the Liberty Meat chat. Really good place. Uh, Got a few butchers in there, quite a few home processors, and we're always learning and sharing things back and forth. And I'm not the only resource out there. There are tons of others. Um, I know there are a few other butchers in this community, uh, Billy Bond being one, and uh, I'm sure I'm missing out on a few. I can't, uh, I can't throw all that out there, but reach out to that community and grow that community. That's what it's all about. It's all about building trust and networking. If you have a great local processor, be sure to give them some love, though, too, and appreciation for that because there are some shitty ones out there. All right, guys, I'm going to sign off on here for now, but if you are looking to follow my stuff, go to renegadebutcher.com. You can check out my podcast there as well as my seasoning blends and all the other fun stuff that I'm doing and educational things as well. If you have questions for me related to meat, seasoning, barbecue, whatever you want to throw out there, um, I'll do my best to answer those for you. Toss them out here to Jack, Survival Podcast. Let them know for Josh, the Renegade Butcher. You guys have a wonderful day, and we'll catch you later.
1: So I personally think that this concern mostly i'm not saying that this nefarious thing never happens um, but i think this comes from mostly people that take deer to be processed that have never processed a deer themselves and they have an unreasonable expectation of the amount of meat that comes off let's say a 120 pound dressed weight deer that they're expecting somewhere in the neighborhood of about 100 pounds of meat. And you ain't going to get 100 pounds of meat off a 120-pound deer, even dressed weight. You just aren't. Um, I guess if you left all the bones in, uh, you'd, you'd get there other than whatever the head weighed. But you know, most people, when they get their, their cuts back, they're getting their cuts back boned out. And that's the way most people butcher deer today. It's actually really quick to butcher a deer. And I generally will then roast the bones and make stock from them. But trying to get all that little last bits of meat off of a deer bone, it, it, it's not worth the effort. So I think part of it is that a person takes a deer and they have this mindset of they're going to completely fill a deep freezer with a single deer. And trust me, we put many deer into a single deep freezer every year when I was a kid because we needed to. And one deer does not fill a deep freezer at all. And so it becomes this: I got less meat back, so either he stole someone or gave me somebody else a smaller deer. Or they look at something like the backstrap cuts, or the, the chops, and they seem pretty small for the size of the deer. But it's a fairly small loin. I think that's where most of this comes from. Now, I'm not, I'm, again, I'm not saying that it never happens. I think the other, and I think the places it may happen is that when people have things made like bologna or sausage, that a lot of processors probably will just because making in volume makes sense for them. Say, like, these ten deer from these ten people went together, and they had to have pork mixed in with them or whatever, and these they each contributed X percent, And then the total yield of sausage goes back to the people that it was. And you might have multiple animals when you have that done. You may or may not. I don't know. But if it ever does happen regularly, it's probably that. Because the reality is there's not a hell of a lot of incentive for a butcher to do this. If they get caught doing it, it hurts them. They gain gain nothing from it. That's what you have to think about. Why would they do that to you? Right, and I think there's a little bit of paranoia here. Again, I'm not saying it never happens. I'm saying it's probably the least likely thing to worry about. And I'll just point out, you know, butchering a cow is a hell of a lot of work. And I understand somebody having a cow processed. I don't like to do birds if I want them plucked because they're a hell of a lot of work. Um, but when it comes to like deer size animals, which would include livestock like smaller pigs, lambs, sheep, etc. If you learn to do this yourself, you'll save money, you'll develop your skills, and you never worry about it. Just some thoughts. Next up, what if you're going to have your spleen removed? Is there anything
8: you should be doing to adapt your life to it? Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the Survival Medicine website, doomandbloom.net. Co-author of the Book Excellence Award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Today's question for the expert counsel comes from Zach, who writes, What preparations, long-term changes should I make for the loss of my spleen and one adrenal gland? About a year ago, I was diagnosed with a rare sarcoma called desmoplastic small round cell tumors. I've spent the last year receiving chemo treatments. The tumors have been very responsive and have dramatically reduced in size. The next step will be having an open abdominal surgery to go in and remove any tumors that might remain. Most of the masses are not attached to any major organs, but one is attached to my spleen and one is located on one of my adrenal glands. There's a chance that they won't have to remove the spleen or adrenal glands, but odds are good that they will need to be removed to prevent the cancer from returning. After recovering from the surgery, I'm supposed to have six weeks of chemo and radiation, then be deemed cancer-free with limited risk of it returning. What are your recommendations for life after using your spleen and an adrenal gland? Also, in general, do you have any recommendations for recovering from an open abdominal surgery? Thanks for all you guys do. Zach. Zach, I'm sorry you're going through this, and I hope for a full remission and recovery. The organs that you're having removed are poorly understood by the general public. They may have heard of the spleen and the adrenal gland, but let's impart a little more information. The adrenal glands are triangular-shaped glands that are located above the kidneys. They provide essential hormones that control the body's fluid and salt regulation. They also produce hormones that control our fear, anger, fight or flight response, blood pressure, muscle development, sexual drive, and sugar metabolism. They secrete hormones that help the body deal with stress. Like the kidneys, at least one adrenal gland is usually required to live a normal life. There are not many side effects documented after adrenal gland removal, if it's only on one side. Rarely a few symptoms are noticed, which include low blood pressure, fatigue, elevated sugar, elevated serum potassium levels, some hormone imbalances infections increased stress levels increase cortisol levels which translate to stress these happen in the minority of patients so you may not notice any difference at all due to removal of one adrenal gland you may need to take a medicine called aldosterone for a few weeks until the natural production of aldosterone is recovered through other glands like the pituitary gland you may also need to take 20 to 30 milligrams of hydrocortisone by mouth each day to mimic normal cortisol production. Now, how about the spleen? The spleen is a fist-sized organ that sits under your rib cage on the left side of your abdomen. Unlike the stomach, liver, or kidneys, it's not directly connected to the other organs in your abdomen. Instead, it's connected to blood vessels with an artery that brings blood to it and a vein which takes the blood away. The spleen is composed of two types of tissue, the red pulp, which filters the blood, and the white pulp, which contains white blood cells that regulate inflammation and in the body's response to infection. Both types of tissues play roles in fighting disease-causing organisms, like bacteria, viruses, fungi, or parasites, that cause infections. The red pulp removes red blood cells, which carry oxygen when they become old, damaged, or infected. It harvests the iron from the old red blood cells for recycling into new red blood cells, Usually new red blood cells are created by the bone marrow, but when blood counts are low and the bone marrow is not working well, the spleen can also make new red blood cells. The loss of the spleen's ability to filter out infected red blood cells increases risks associated with certain parasitic infections, like malaria and babesia. Malaria is spread by mosquito bites in many parts of Africa, Asia, and South and Central America. Babesia is spread by tick bites in the northeastern and upper midwestern part of the U.S., A different species of Babesia is found throughout Europe. People without a spleen should take extra precautions to avoid these infections if they live in or visit a region where these infections are common, such as using insect repellents. An area in the red pulp called the marginal zone contains special white blood cells known as macrophages, which filter disease-causing organisms out of the blood. Someone without a spleen is at risk for severe or even deadly infections from certain types of bacteria. You're going to be encouraged to keep up to date with vaccines as they significantly decrease the risk of these particular types of infections like streptococcus pneumonia, Haemophilus influenza, and Neisseria meningitis. Additionally, it's usually recommended that people without a spleen have antibiotics that they carry with them often referred to as pill in pockets and they can take these at the first sign of an infection, such as fevers or chills. For children without a spleen, their doctors may even recommend that they be on antibiotics all the time. Now, what does a white pulp normally do? The white pulp is composed of lymphoid tissue, which contains white blood cells, the body's main means of fighting disease-causing organisms and regulating infection. White blood cells act as the body's police force, patrolling the bloodstream to find infections and damage to the body and working together to combat it. There are many types of white blood cells that function in different and often complex ways. Some fight infections directly by releasing substances that are toxic to these organisms or by swallowing them whole, a process called phagocytosis. Some fight infections indirectly by assisting the direct fighters or by producing antibodies that mark these organisms for destruction by other white blood cells. Fortunately for people who do not have a spleen, the body has other lymphoid tissues containing white blood cells such as lymph nodes. For many types of infections the remaining lymphoid tissues are able to mount an adequate response however with the loss of the lymphoid tissue in the spleen the immune system has a bigger challenge fighting infection usually when the spleen is removed other organs such as the liver can take over most of the functions of the spleen but because the spleen is important for the body's defense against germs the patient's at higher risk for infection after the operation to prevent infection Doctors recommend all immunizations two weeks prior or two weeks after the procedure. Usually, the doctor recommends the flu shot every year, for example. Children are placed on antibiotics every day until the age of 16 to avoid infections. Adults are only placed on antibiotics when they're sick or when they're on the verge of developing an infection. People without a spleen who plan on traveling out of the country or to a place where medical help is not available should carry antibiotics to take as soon as they become sick. Interestingly enough, about 30% of people have a second spleen called an accessory spleen. These are usually pretty small. but They grow and function when the main spleen is removed. As for recovering from general abdominal surgery, open abdominal surgery, do not try to go back to normal activities too quickly. This is going to cause strain on the incision and it could indeed cause you to have a wound infection or a opening up of the in- stitches, which we call a dehiscence. These can cause major issues, and you don't want to have to go back to the hospital so soon after being in it. Consider pain medicines and antibiotics. I hope this helps, and I wish you the best of luck with your upcoming surgery. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, please consider supporting our mission by getting some of the quality medical kits, individual supplies, and personal protection gear available at store.doomandbloom.net. My big thing is
1: I'm just happy to hear that you know going through treatment like that seems to have paid off, and it looks like you're going to be cancer-free, so good for you, man. I uh, hope everything works out for the best. It's always scary going under the knife, even when the prognosis is good. So I uh, hope this goes well for you when you have it done. Next up, i got a question about the year 1913 with C.J. Kilmer. Now, I tell expert panel members that I want these segments kept seven, eight minutes, something like that, and... I give people a little leeway when they need it. CJ's new to this. So this kind of ends abruptly, and I think he got as close as he could to the end and just cut it off. So that's why it may seem to end a little bit abruptly. But the question is basically why did so much shit go down in 1913? And a lot did. And a lot of it is connected, a lot of it eventually became connected, but it's not quite the conspiracy that it's made out to be on the grand conspiratorial 10 hat scale. But there is some real substance to the fact that it was a pivotal year. And as as CJ calls it, the high tide of American progressivism 1.0. And I would agree with that. 1913 was when the progressive wing in the United States government made its greatest lasting long-term implications but not everything was particularly that and with more on that cj kilmer from the dangerous history podcast
9: howdy this is cj from the dangerous history podcast and i'm answering an email from carl who asks why so many major things happened in the year of 1913. And then his email contains, I guess, a screenshot of a tweet from someone named Harrison H. Smith, who I admit I had never heard of prior to looking at this email. Apparently, just from my brief looking into this person, he is affiliated with Infowars. Beyond that, I know really nothing about this person. But the tweet in question says that all of these things happened in 1913, and at least from my reading of it sort of implies that they were all connected somehow. Maybe I'm reading too much into that, but that's how it came across to me. So the things that are listed in this tweet are the Federal Reserve Act, the income tax in the U.S., which of course is the 16th Amendment, Ford's invention of the assembly line, the founding of the Rockefeller Foundation, the founding of the ADL or Anti-Defamation League, the first Aliyah to Israel... And then last, it lists the 17th Amendment. So I'll start off talking about the first two items and the last item in this tweet, all of which are American political developments. So 1913 is arguably more or less the high tide of what I would call American progressivism, version 1.0. And so the increasingly dominant political ideology, which was present as major factions in both the Republican and Democratic parties, as well as briefly in the Progressive or Bull Moose Party in 1912, This was a major force, perhaps the single largest American political faction at the time, and it reached across parties, as I said, and they very much, you know, various progressives, be they Republican, Democrat, progressive party, they might differ on some of the details of exactly how they wanted these things to be set up, but there was broad agreement on creating a new central bank, on making a permanent income tax amendment, and on passing what would become the 17th Amendment, which was the amendment that took the United States Senate from a body composed of people chosen by state legislators to a body of people directly voted on by the voters of their respective states. Those three things all happened to be passed in 1913, but they all had many, many years of work behind them by various activists and lobbying groups and intellectuals and so on and so forth. So it just so happened they culminated in 1913 during the first year of the presidency of Woodrow Wilson. And for those not familiar with my podcast, I am currently in the midst of a multi-year project of a many-part, many-hour deep-dive narrative series into the life and career of Woodrow Wilson. I believe the last one I did was part 10, and I still have probably at least another half-dozen installments to go before I'm completely done with this story. So, a while back, I did... An episode just on the year 1913 and all the things that went down in Woodrow Wilson's first year as president. Again, the Federal Reserve, the income tax, and making U.S. senators directly elected by the voters of their states. All of those things passed on his watch. He supported all of them. He, you know, happily went along with passing all of them. But those probably would have all been passed, give or take, roughly around that time period, regardless of who was president. You know, for example, if Teddy Roosevelt had won on the Bull Moose ticket in 1912 probably he would have been going along with all three of those things as well. He might have differed on some of the details of them from Wilson, but they probably would have been passed within a year or two of when they were passed, regardless of who was president. Now, regarding Ford inventing the assembly line and the Rockefeller Foundation being founded, I don't think these two things are directly connected, other than that they are both symptoms of the fact that the high tide of progressivism 1.0 was also a major high tide, and not the only one and not the last one, but a high tide for American big corporations. And so the Rockefeller Foundation is emblematic of a new strategy devised by oligarchs to preserve their wealth tax-free and translate that wealth into political power under the guise of quote-unquote philanthropy. And the Rockefeller Foundation was one, um, I forget if it was the first one or whatever, but it's one of the initial big three corporate foundations that were set up for these purposes of preserving wealth and translating it into power under the guise of philanthropy. The initial big three are the Ford, Carnegie, and Rockefeller Foundations. And those have had massive influences on American life and the American political system and the U.S. government and a whole bunch of other things that cannot really be exaggerated. Ford's development of the assembly line. 1913 is usually listed as the year that he quote-unquote created the moving assembly line. In reality, like any invention, there's a lot leading up to it. Um, Ford had been you know, producing cars and working on developing his production technique to make it more efficient for years leading up to that culmination of, you know, the full-blown, this is the assembly line as we know it. And to be fair, there were people making other things than cars prior to Ford who developed at least aspects of the idea of the assembly line that Ford, A, put all together, and B, applied to, you know, making automobiles. And then with the things relating... To Jews, the founding of the ADL and the first Aliyah to Israel. Well, first off, the founding of the ADL. The ADL as we know it today is, as far as I know, very different from the ADL as it originally existed and as it was founded. Uh, the ADL from what I understand anyway was founded as a way to try and combat legit serious anti-Semitic prejudices and things that were uh, quite rampant and mainstream in the U.S. in the early 20th century. Now, today, it's you know kind of like the SPLC in that it goes around accusing everybody of being a racist and a Nazi who disagrees with kind of the establishment and, you know, accuses of anti-Semitism anyone who criticizes the state of Israel or criticizes American neocons or criticizes the overall idea of Zionism. But I don't think, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think the original ADL was that way. And then in regard to the first Aliyah to Israel, which is the first mass movement of Jews to Palestine to eventually culminate in the founding of the State of Israel. Actually, that is erroneous. That did not happen in 1913. Uh, The first Aliyah to Israel is usually dated as something like 1881 to 1901. And then the second Aliyah to Israel is dated as 1904 to 1914. So obviously 1913 would be in that second Aliyah, but it's not the first Aliyah, and it's not like it all happened in one year. And I'm not sure why someone would include in these other developments the founding of the ADL, and the misdated first Aliyah to Israel, other than to at least imply the old cliché of everything is a Jewish banker conspiracy. And I suppose the implication is that, you know, some secret cabal of Jewish bankers is sitting somewhere and pulling the puppet strings of everything happening in the world, and they're simultaneously um, setting up the Federal Reserve the Income Tax. And all that while they're starting Zionism and setting up the ADL and all these things as if it's all part of one big master plan, which I don't believe it was. Now, there was such a thing as a master plan in the minds of Zionists at the time, but I don't think that, you know, there's like this one globalist group of Jews who's plotting all this stuff at once. These are all things, some of which are interrelated to each other on this list, but these are all distinct things, and they're not all directly related to each other, and there are historical reasons why Jews historically have been disproportionately represented in things like banking. But that doesn't mean that every Jew is in on some huge conspiracy. It also doesn't mean that all of the banksters around the world are Jewish. They're not. Um, Some of the biggest banksters in the U.S. and in the U.K. for that matter were as white Anglo-Saxon Protestant as you can get. People like J.P. Morgan, for example.
1: So, uh, again, I think that's why he kind of chopped there at the end just to be clear i didn't do it to him and i'll i'll let him know when he has something like this if he needs to go 30 seconds over something to to give it a less chopped ending that i will give him that and i also tell expert panel members if you need more than the allotted time for a specific segment and you ask me i'll probably say yes as long as it's not chronic Because if I have every expert panel member giving me 15-minute answers, then I've got three-hour-long expert counsel shows. Anyway, with that, I want to talk about my segment today. And I, I saw this quote this morning. I'm like, this is a good thing for me to talk about, given the state of affairs we're in. Benjamin Franklin once said, A great empire like a great cake is most easily diminished at the edges. And... You might think this was a warning, but it was more a tactic. How do you attack an empire? Well, you attack it at its edges. And if you attack it at its edges, all of its edges, you do a three-pronged, four-pronged attack. And if you have multiple adversaries, you can bring even the greatest empire to its knees. And the larger an empire spreads, the greater the edge and the more opportunity there is to be attacked. So in permaculture, we teach about valuing edge. We teach about the fact that all the abundance is on the edge. But that is a productive system, where an empire is a parasitic system. And the American empire is the largest parasitic system that's ever existed in the world. And it is almost in some ways an anti-parasite. Because a parasite takes from its host for itself. And the U.S. has done that to a large degree, especially to enrich the oligarchical class. But over the last 30 years especially, our parasitism has been against ourselves. We are self-mining and distributing the the production of the American people and debt attributed to the American people all around the world. We're spreading out our number one export is dollars, which are all debt certificates. That we are responsible for. So we're like a tick that bit the host, but instead of sucking blood, put our blood into the host and drained ourselves. How long can a parasite do that? And then those edges become dramatically weak. And this is this is typical of an empire at an end stage. It attempts to buy more and more loyalty and obedience from its vassals. So that's what all these nations that are, you know, our friends, our allies, etc., have become as our vassals. There's not one of them that's not getting money directly from us every year. Not one of them. Plenty of countries, big, wealthy countries. We're still paying them. We're paying friendship dues at this point. And that is a point of diminishing returns. Like, I have to raise... We're just going to be a joke that we used to, like, guys busting on each other in school, like, hey, man, I'm going to have to up your friendship dues if you want to keep hanging out, right? That was just guys messing with each other. But that's, like, literally happening now. Like, oh, you you want us to continue to play ball. And now you're starting to see nations realize the diminishing return of, of our friendship dues that maybe they need to do business with other people. So you have a NATO ally in France doing business outside of what we want with China. You have an an ally in Japan, one of our strongest, staunchest allies, doing business with Russia, and then after the fact, like I covered earlier this week, we're like, oh, we made an exception. You didn't make an exception. They took the exception, and you pretended to go along with it. I guarantee you that Japan was not told by the United States, yeah, go ahead, it's okay. You can pay over the capped rate To Russia for oil. It's fine. Go ahead and go do it. No, that did not happen. Japan, having no fossil fuels of its own, stuck as an island nation in the part of the world that they're in, is going to trade for petroleum with the closest, most economical source. And that source is Russia. So they did it. And then we pretended to go along. This would be the edges of the empire. How much further can you go before you start to get closer to home around the spherical Earth than Japan for the edges of empire? How about Australia? Australia's number one trading partner is now China. How did Trump say it? China, right? I'm a huge Trump fan or anything, but there's a really funny meme. It's Kermit the Frog, and it says, Sometimes I miss the way he said China. And you know who he's talking about, right? China. So China's the number one trading partner with Australia, a staunch ally of the United States. How much? How how, how long can this go on? Who's next? Do you think Germany's particularly happy with us right now, knowing full well that the Brandon administration is the ones behind blowing up the Nordstrom pipeline? Do you think Germany's actually happy about that? If Germany didn't want the gas... They wouldn't have paid for it, and Russia wouldn't have sent it. Yeah? Okay? Uh, this whole idea that Russia blew... You know they stopped saying that. They just they said it right at the beginning. They waited for something else to come up in the news, for that to cycle through, and they shut up about it. Right? But it, it was all disinformation that we blew it up. No, Russia blew, Why would Russia blow up a tube that they put so much effort into installing when if they don't want anything to flow through the tube, they just don't send anything? It's not like it was a, t- a straw, right? It wasn't the slanted oil wells in Kuwait. Do you know about that? Do you know why Iraq invaded Kuwait and caused Gulf War 1? Or we jumped in and caused Gulf War 1? Because the Kuwaitis had oil rigs just on the other side of the Iraqi border and were drilling on an angle and sucking the oil out of the Iraqi oil fields and not tendering any compensation to Iraq. I didn't tell you that when that was going on. Well, that's not what Nordstrom was. Nordstrom wasn't Germany with a pipe sucking gas out of frickin' Russia. It was Russia pumping gas to Germany and selling it to them. We blew it up. Edge of the empire. Edge of the empire. China has taken incredible influence in Central America and Africa. Edge of the empire. We have a United States military command, Africa. U.S. command, Africa. Why do we have a edge of the empire? A great empire, like a great cake, is most easily diminished at the edges. I've been pouring it on lately with this. Because this is now the acceleration point. At the beginning of the show today, Ron Paul said... Oh, I don't I don't think the US will be the dominant global reserve currency for much longer, maybe five, ten years. It'll still be around as the global reserve, but it won't be the global reserve. I don't think we have that long. I think this is a matter of a year, two, three. To what and every every of those three years the, the influence of the dollar globally will decline. And I agree with Dr. Paul that the larger implications are for the good. We don't need to have complete monopoly over the world. And I I also tell you, I don't think the Chinese yuan will be the new global currency. I think there's going to be a BRICS currency. There's going to be some form of a multi-basket or something currency. I don't think that Brazil is like, yeah, instead of using the dollar, we'll just use the yuan. Right? Like, Russia's like, yeah, we'll just use the one, like, the the concept now of having a single nation have a monopoly on monetary creation over the global reserve currency, we, the, the world is basically civil. That was stupid. Edge of the empire. That was stupid. Why would we ever do such a thing? Well, America's good. You give absolute power to anybody and it gets corrupted absolutely. Edge of the empire. You're standing right now at the edge of the empire. When when Franklin said edge of the empire, he was speaking geographically. I'm speaking temporally. Do you understand the difference? Edge of the empire geographically is how far does the empire extend? But empires are temporal. There's never been an empire that didn't fall. Say it again, there's never been an empire that didn't fall. I don't know that there will ever be an empire that won't fall. And what that means is that empires have a beginning and an end, and those are also edges. And a great empire is most easily diminished at its edge, its temporal edge. So while it's rising and it's young and it's in its infancy, before it gains vast power, it can be cut off. If its rise is recognized, it can be stopped. It can be stopped. But once it gets momentum, once it begins to grow it becomes seemingly unstoppable but then under its own weight, through its own internal corruption through its own efforts to see to power above seeing to the needs of its citizens it reaches the outside edge of the empire temporally and it begins to collapse from within. Its bridges begin to crumble its trains begin to go off the tracks. Its roads begin to crumble and fall apart. Its great cities go into decay, both physically and morally. People begin to flee population centers. A couple hundred thousand people left Los Angeles last year. A couple hundred thousand. Los, not California, Los Angeles. The City of Angels, one of the great cities of the United States. People are fleeing New York City. People are fleeing Philadelphia. People are fleeing Atlanta, Georgia. Buckhead, that's part of Atlanta, Georgia, is like, yeah, we're just going to be our own town. Since we don't want to leave physically, we're just going to leave geographically and that we're going to create a new border and say we're not part of your thing anymore. We don't want to pay for your crap at our own expense anymore. People are leaving every major city in America, except a few. Every major city in America, except a few. Texas is growing. Florida is growing. South Dakota is growing. It doesn't have any major cities, though. Sioux Falls is in a major city, if you've ever been there. So the major cities and the most populous states are bleeding people. I saw a thing recently. It was on Twitter, and it was you know DeSantis, one of DeSantis' fans bragging about how many Republicans have registered in Florida versus like the Democrats always had a registration advantage in Florida for decades, and it swung and it's a it's like the biggest swing, and it's just total registered voters. This isn't about voting. It's how you registered as a party affiliation, and it's like a it's a trouncing. And, they're, they're, of course, they're p- pimping up DeSantis with it. I'm not doing it. I'm just telling you what, what happened. And the responses from the lunatic left were, well, look at all the people that left New York and went to Florida. Most of them were conservatives and Republicans. It wouldn't matter if a potato was the governor. Okay, let's say that was true. That it wouldn't matter if it was a potato that was the governor. Well, why'd they go to Florida? Fifty states? Go anywhere you want. Florida. Why? Policy. Policy And two policies in particular. One, you can go exist, even though that we have a, a bad cold out and about. But the other policy is, well, actually it's three, tax policy. So I'm thinking of leaving, I'm fed up, I'm leaving New York, I'm leaving California, whatever, right? Whatever it is, Oregon, and I'm picking where to go. And I realize, well, you know, I've been paying these assholes in this state 13% income tax if I'm in a top tax bracket. Florida looks pretty good. What's their what's their income tax? Zero. Oh, I like zero. Texas, what's its income tax? Zero. Oh, I like zero. South Dakota, what's its income tax? Zero. Zero. I like zero. Yeah. Tennessee, what's its income tax? Zero. I like zero. This is why these states are growing, and the cities are growing as well. But it's not just the cities. But that the cities are growing, and the states as a whole are growing. Massive shift. Why? Because people are fleeing the rotting shitholes. Get out, get out, get out. There's a reason I told you to three years ago. I started ramping up that call, get out of the cities. Because now it's a lot more expensive to move to Texas or Florida. Because so many people have done it and they're competing for inventory. Edge of the Empire. When the Roman Empire collapsed... The places themselves didn't go away but a lot of the great cities went into complete decline and decay and all of the productive people left. Edge of the empire. You're standing at the temporal edge of the U.S. empire. And I highly suggest like I've been pouring it on lately the homesteading stuff, the entrepreneur stuff, the life, launch, life law, lifestyle design stuff. Get on it. If you're already on it, ramp it up. We are going to have flux that we're going to go through. I've only been telling you for a decade. It's coming. Here it is. We're going to have flux that we're going to go through that's going to be very difficult to get through. I think my grandchildren will be so much better for this happening when they're my age. But I'm the one that has to live through it as an adult. I'm the one that has to adapt, and so are you. I know you didn't ask for it. I've said that many times the last couple weeks. I know you didn't ask to be born at this time in this place for this event. But you're here. And instead of being afraid of it, instead of cowering, instead of saying it's all over, instead of being Eeyore, it'll never work. No. Now is the time to build your fortune. If you can fog a mirror, you're not done yet. But stay focused. By God. On your circle of control first your circle of influence second and your circle of concern it's like a weather report glance at it once a day think about if a storms coming where you're gonna take shelter and go on and keep frickin building keep frickin planting, keep making your life better teach your children teach them the skills they're gonna need in the future get them out of the state-run government shithole schools I don't even care if you're in a state like Florida or Texas. Our schools are terrible, too. Just because they're not as bad doesn't mean they're not terrible. The state does not deserve the honor and the privilege of shaping the mind of your children. And if you send your children to the emperor for education, they will come home Romans. Romans at the edge of the Roman Empire. Not a good time to be a Roman. With that, has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
0: Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have
3: a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay.